Father, we come this morning lifting up our prayers to you. We come um, with prayers for peace and um, protection and comfort and safety for uh, those in um, the Syrian conflicts this morning. We come with prayers for wisdom uh, and courage uh, for um, the leaders of our nation and uh, other nations throughout the world. Father, we pray that those who are currently being oppressed and those who are experiencing um, pain and violence um, would feel the peace of Christ, would be surrounded by the love that knows no bounds, would feel solidarity with the God who came and became man and suffered with us and for us. We pray that you would enable us through our prayers and actions um, to become the type of people who live out Um, your will here on earth. We pray that um, as we um, gaze upon your son, as we um, seek to follow him and worship him, that we would slowly but surely um, be brought into a closer relationship with you and be more faithfully fueled by the Holy Spirit um, to follow you. We ask the Spirit to speak to us this morning uh, and to Transform us as we experience your presence. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen. Good morning. It's good to see all of you. A couple years ago, I got married to my beautiful bride, Lindsay. And one of the things I had to do before we got married is we had to go through marriage counseling. And I don't know if you've done this or not. We uh, went to marriage counseling with Wes, uh, our associate pastor here at the church at the time. And for us, marriage counseling was basically figuring out how much we actually disliked one another. We had actually been a pretty peaceful couple for the years that we had dated, and then all of a sudden it was like, wow, we disagree on everything, and we're fighting all the time, and it was kind of like, I can't wait for this to be over so we can get back to having a nice relationship. Um, and so, but it did prepare us for a lot, and we kind of knew what was, we were getting into going in and what some of the issues were going to be. But the one thing that we were not prepared for, and that none of you <laughs> even mentioned once, was the constant everyday war that would be the thermostat in the house. None of you. And you knew it. We have smartphones, iPhones, and we can control the AC. About 90% of our marriage is sitting next to the other person changing it. She likes the house to be around 48 degrees. And I like to be able to feel my bones, and so we have uh, these disagreements. At our house, arguing over the thermostat is like a hostage negotiation. Very high stakes. We're writing down numbers and sliding it across the kitchen table. I looked it up, like 90% of couples actually say they've had legitimate arguments over, over the temperature in their house. I think the other 10%, the men just gave up and uh, bought some extra layers. I don't know how this goes. Um, but, so we're constantly kind of going back and forth over the, the, the temperature. She usually likes it a little colder than I am. Every now and then I get kind of in her zone, and just about that time she likes it warmer, and so we go back and forth. Um, there's this group of people, though, who fascinate me, and they have a skill set that would really be valuable for me, particularly in this situation. Uh, in the 1980s, early 1980s, a Harvard researcher um, went to go study um, Tibetan monks. These were Buddhist monks, and this is a research project that's been talked about and, and um, kind of put all over the place. You've probably heard something or another related to it over time. 
Um, these monks had kind of legendary stories that had been told about their abilities to meditate and the powers that their mind had, kind of mind over matter type uh, material. But by nature of, uh, you know, this kind of private monastery um, and the kind of advanced technology that it takes to do these kind of studies, no one had really been able to kind of get access to and, and, and kind of confirm or deny what's going on over there. Um, eventually, this man did, and he got over there and did some studies. And what he found out was that, indeed, these Tibetan monks who are like varsity-level meditators, right? This is not like you watch a YouTube video and now you can meditate. This is like 40 years of meditation. Um, could actually, by meditating, increase their body temperature. And originally the study focused on their extremities, their toes, their, their skin, um, their, their fingers. Um, and over time, this, this study got broadly kind of cast out to the world. And there were a lot of scientists who were very concerned and very skeptical about it. Um, didn't think it was very reproducible, thought that people were, you know, misinterpreting it and kind of exaggerating the results. And so in 2013, actually, we were able to go back and they formed another study. Um, and the technology had advanced quite a bit since then. We were able to do much more advanced imaging and things of that nature. And what they confirmed was more or less, it was true. This is what was happening. The stories that come from this community are that these monks will... Um, almost in kind of a contest and initiation process, think like a, a very spiritual form of hazing, I guess. They, they're meditating in about 40-degree weather, okay? So it's pretty cold. I mean, normal in our house, but it's a pretty cold outside. And what will happen is, is they'll be, um, someone will come with a, a, a sheet or a light item of clothing that's ice, it's frozen, and they'll put it on, um, this monk, as they're meditating, and as they increase their body temperature, it starts to steam, and within about an hour, it's dry. Um, they're able to increase their core temperature that much. Um, in fact, we were able to watch, the researchers were able to look at the brain and see exactly how it was accomplishing this raising of the body temperature, um, and they found that the, the monks were actually capable of taking their body temperature from a normal level into fever levels which I'm sure kids all across the world would love to do. Mom, I don't feel great this morning. I'm feeling hot. And they're able to produce this, this fever. Um, we're in the, the second part of a series called Neuroscience and Faith, where we're looking at um, some of the evidence and research and studies that have come out of this booming field called neuroscience, which is the study of our brain, um, and looking at it from the angle of spiritual disciplines. And so we're not looking at it necessarily just because it's interesting, although it is very interesting. We're not looking at it because I'm a neuroscientist and I'm really smart. I'm not a neuroscientist, and I've just kind of read enough to be able to pronounce some of these words for you. We're looking at it because we're Christians and because we want our faith to be informed. Last week, we talked about gratitude. And we don't need science as Christians to tell us to be grateful. We don't need science to tell us that being grateful is good for us. Right? We have the scriptures. We have the commands of God to be grateful. We have our own experiences. But we can take advantage of what science can tell us about the way our brains operate and how it might help us become closer to God, might help us become more Christ-like might help us position ourselves and equip ourselves better to fulfill the mission of Christ, to make more disciples and to spread the good news. This morning, we're going to be doing that with the topic of prayer. If you have your scriptures, open up with me to Psalm 84, the book of Psalms, chapter 84. 
Prayer and meditation is one of the most studied aspects of the spiritual experience of humans from a neuroscientific uh, standpoint. It's a universal experience. Human beings have been praying and and meditating um, as far back as we can tell with history and archaeology. It spans different religions, different cultures. Um, Meditation and prayer seem to go hand in hand. Most people will define it. Um, This way, prayer seems to be a kind of specialized form of meditation. So meditation would be some sort of attempt at a spiritual experience or spiritual awakening, and prayer would be an attempt to spiritually engage with the deity, in our case, with God the Father. Um, And so um, in Psalm 84, I want to look at a text that I found very profound uh, about someone seeking after God's presence, um, which is what we're doing when we pray as Christians. It goes like this, how lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. Maybe some of you are now singing the contemporary Christian worship song in your mind. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Listen to the yearning in that language. This, this poem is about the temple. And for the Israelites, that's where they went to experience the presence of God. For you and I, though, this is often what we do with prayer. We go when we come into the presence of God. We seek his communion. The psalmist is talking about how lovely it is where God is. And it's talking about, you you see his embodied experience there. My heart and my flesh, my bones, everything yearns to be where you are. Even the sparrow, he says, finds a home. The swallow a nest for herself where she may lay her young at your altars. O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Blessed, flourished, fulfilled are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. Blessed are those whose strength is in you and whose heart are the highways to Zion. As they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Behold our shield, O God. Look on the face of your anointed. Verse 10 is where it really picks up for me. The psalmist says this, One day, for a day in your courts, is better than a thousand elsewhere. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. My deepest desire for you is that you've had an experience or will have an experience like the one the psalmist is expressing in verse 10, where he says, One day in your presence is better than a thousand anywhere else. With prayer, I think the ultimate goal relationally, as we seek God's presence, is this experience of his grace. I don't know if you keep up with things like this, but this past weekend, Coachella was going on, and and there were a couple of artists there that I um, kind of listened to because my pagan friends make me, not because as a pastor I I listen to that type of music, and I kind of wanted to be there. And and I don't know if you've ever been to like a cool concert or an event or some uh, awesome conference or whatever it is that you like to do, and you've had that moment where you're like, If this could last forever, I'm in. 
if I could bottle up this experience or this feeling and just take it with me, everything would be perfect. What the psalmist is saying is his experience of the beauty and the joy and the peace that's come with experiencing the presence of God, he says a second of that, a day of that, is better than an eternity of the best experiences that I've ever had. Prayer is, in many ways, the heartbeat of the Christian life. Like I said, it's a universal experience. It's present in in most religions. In the Christian religion, though, building upon the ancient Israelites' walk with God, prayer has always been central. There's not really a scripture verse that defines prayer per se. It's kind of an assumed practice. Human beings have kind of always felt this need to express themselves to to God. And so we have many examples in the scriptures of prayers. We're often told things to pray about, how to pray. Jesus himself models prayers for us, models a life of prayer for us. He gives us a prayer, the Lord's Prayer. And in many ways, Christianity is built around praying. Our spiritual lives as Christians are built around prayer, this coming and going into the presence of God. Martin Luther once said that to be a Christian without prayer is no more possible than to be alive without breathing. In the same way, our lungs fill and exhale, and it allows us to keep walking and living. So the experience of prayer is vital to our our experience as Christians. Now, prayer begins with God in the Christian world. So here's what I'd like to emphasize, particularly before we get into any science stuff this morning, okay? Um, When it comes to prayer and meditation, neurologically, what happens in your brain when you pray and meditate is more or less true for everybody. So Christians, when they pray and they meditate, what happens in their minds neurologically is more or less the same thing that's happening when a Jewish person is praying and meditating. More or less the same thing what's happening when a Muslim person is praying and meditating. There's one very interesting exception, which we'll talk about, but more or less it's the same thing. Like gratitude that we talked to about last week, you can probably guess that it's going to result in a lot of positive benefits for humanity. But this is a particularly good example of how we're approaching this kind of neuroscience. We're approaching it specifically from Christianity, a distinctively Christian approach. We want our faith to inform what science is telling us about what is possible in our our brains with our neurons. And so from a Christian standpoint, the reason we pray is because God initiates it. It is we believe that God is a personal God is a God who communicates, is a God who reaches out. There's this gap between creation and creator, and God always takes the initiative to bridge that gap. And he comes and he forms relationships with people and communities. And in Jesus, he comes and bridges the gap ultimately, and God, the creator, becomes a human being. Prayer is one of the many ways we simply respond to the God who's already speaking. Prayer, there's, there's different types of, of prayers. There's different ways for us to pray. But as a personal God, our reaction of prayer is usually one of the more personal and intimate ways we encounter God. Prayers are often um, silent. We mentally think 
prayers. We, we say them out loud as, as well. You can maybe divide prayers up into two large groups. Um, we'll call the first group like conversational prayers. And this is more just um, talking to God, expressing things to God. Praying is more or less just speaking to God. And so um, this could be confessing your sins, which has always been a big part of the Christian tradition. Telling God about the ways that you have faltered. Not to receive guilt and shame. We confess in the context of grace. We confess we give up our sins while we swim in the pool of forgiveness. This is what allows us to approach God and find peace and absolution and confession. When we praise God, when we express gratitude, this is conversational prayer. Thank you for this. I appreciate this. When we lament, when we tell God about the many things we don't appreciate, that have gone wrong in our lives. This is conversational prayer. And then you have petitions. We often think of prayer in this way. We, we ask God for things in prayer. Sometimes we have personal requests that we bring to God, and at other times we're interceding for somebody else, intercessory prayer. Walter Wink, a, a Christian theologian, once said that history belongs to the intercessors, which has always made an impression on me especially as we live in a world right now that's in turmoil, where large decisions are being made every day and where often we feel overwhelmed and how we might be able to influence the world and our communities around us in a Christian way, we're reminded that the pages of history, the contours of human civilization, are owned by the people who throw rocks at the gates of heaven, are owned by the people who go to God over and over and over again, expecting him to give good gifts and bring their prayers to him, bring their requests to him. Last week, we talked about gratitude and how central a part expressing and experiencing gratefulness plays in allowing our brains to flourish and allowing us to follow Christ faithfully, equip ourselves to fulfill Christ's mission. And prayer is often the main conduit through which we can express and experience gratitude. It's in the context of prayer um, that this happens, that this takes place. There's another type of prayer that I'd like to mention that sometimes Christians don't mention as often or we're skeptical of, and, and this is called contemplative prayer. And this type of prayer is less verbal and more experiential. Um, it is less about thinking certain thoughts or talking and more about sitting in the presence of Jesus. Do you see the difference there? You can talk about grace and you can tell God, thank you for your forgiveness, or you can experience and feel that forgiveness. I don't know if you've ever had this, this, this moment with a spouse or a best friend where, where you just enjoy their presence and no words need to be said. And, and it's like basking in the sun, right? You're just sitting there and, and, and just wave over wave. It's just coming over you. This is contemplative, contemplative prayer. Um, it's kind of a centering prayer. Mindfulness, which is, is a big um, popular um, field now out of our, our studies from prayer and meditation, is the closest um, that we get to this contemplative prayer, being in the moment. So in contemplative prayer, um, we're not asking God for things we're simply trying to center our thoughts on who God is and then rest in that knowledge and that experience, being present in the moment. And there's, there's many ways that we might do this. Um, some of the most powerful experiences I've had as a Christian have come from these moments of contemplative prayer. 
One was just in my office back there, um, a, a few rooms away. I was in grad school, and I was working on my thesis and had, had just um, made a kind of a, like an intellectual breakthrough and was thinking about the incarnation and, and had kind of put together some thoughts and then stopped and I was kind of praying. And then all of a sudden, like the magnitude of God's love for humanity and his love for Mike Skinner as he became a human being was just as real as anything had ever been real. And I no longer wanted to think about it. Does that make sense? I just, I just sat in it. I just experienced it. My bones just rejoiced in it. And, and this is probably close to have gotten to this verse 10, because that experience, I don't want that to end. Worship can be great, but it's not, it wasn't like that. The ultimate Christian goal is this relational one. We enter into the life of the Trinity. We can get a taste of that through prayer. This is going to be what eternity is like for us in the presence of God. Now, here's what happens in prayer, neurologically. Okay, when we approach God in prayer or meditation, um, contemplative prayer, basically on a general level, what's happening is um, we're finding that uh, prayer and meditation influences our state of mind in a way that generally relaxes us and in turn, obviously, influences the state of our body. So large-level things happen. Um, the studies and research and evidence for this are overflowing. Um, I mean, just hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds. Um, it reduces anxiety. It elevates depressed moods. It lowers blood pressure. It stabilizes sleep patterns. It improves autonomic functions like digestion and breathing, things you do um, automatically. Um, neuroscientists have done lots of investigations into what's happening in the brain when we pray and we meditate. Again, it's probably the most studied spiritual experience um, that neuroscientists have explored. Um, what happens is brains seem to have this default state. All of us share this as human beings um, called the self-referential processing state. This is the stream of thought consciousness. This is what distracts us when we're trying to pray, right? When we don't have a goal that we're focusing on or an object or thought that we're focusing on and just these thoughts come in, and prayer is going from that moment to a moment of focus towards God, towards a spiritual truth. And what's happening in the brain is we're going from feelings of worry and fear and stress into feelings of joy and peace and hope. Neurologically, what's happening is over the course of your day, your limbic system starts to get activated. Your limbic system is a part of your brain that's probably the oldest part of your brain. And it is responsible for a lot of the emotions that you experience, particularly some of these negative emotions, um, worry, fear, anxiety, hatred, those type of things. Um, it is a very useful part of your brain for survival, fight or flight. This is why we think probably this is one of the first parts of your brain that developed. This kept you alive in a lot of situations. Unfortunately, you and I now are neurotic about our anxieties, right? Most of our fight or flight experiences aren't actually life or death, but here's the rub. Your brain doesn't tell the difference. It's really smart, but it's still experiencing chemically and electrically the same thing that you would experience with a saber-toothed tiger racing at you thousands and thousands and thousands of years ago. It's neurotic. So I'm worried about a phone call I have to make because I don't like doing that type of thing. But my brain 
is activating this limbic system. And I'm fearing, and I'm worrying, I'm having anxiety. This creates stress, and stress is this chronic kind of derailment of all of our, our body systems. And in our modern world, we just kind of build up stress, chronic stress, over and over and over again. And then what happens when we start to pray and meditate is the limbic system starts to calm down. We're able to take some attention away from it. We're able to take some blood flow away from it. And we're able to activate some other parts of our brain. Parts of our brain that bring out some positive hormones, some positive neurotransmitters, chemicals. Parts of our brain that bring us um, feelings of relaxation and joy. Um, So study after study has found that that these and, and more actually are some of the changes that take place Um, during and after prayer and meditation, okay? Your autonomic nervous system, which controls relaxation and arousal, is activated. And so your entire body, literally at the cellular level, starts to relax. Again, if you're doing prayer and meditation intentionally and correctly and getting where you're supposed to be going with this. Um, Obviously, if you're stuck in the self-referential state where you can't really focus, um, you're not going to be receiving as much of these results, um, not as much as is going to be happening. Your parasympathetic activity starts to increase. What this means is your heart rate starts to decrease. Your blood pressure um, regulates itself. Your metabolism actually starts to regulate itself. There are other monks um, who have had studies um, replicated on them, and they're able to increase and decrease their metabolism at will. Again, seems like a particularly useful mental skill. Your respiration starts to regulate. Um, The amount of hormones um, that are produced um, start to increase towards these so-called positive hormones. In particular, one we talked about with gratitude, oxytocin. Oxytocin, I don't know how to pronounce it. um, Which is a a pro-social bonding relational hormone. Um, This is what's released when you touch somebody else, an extended hug. This is what makes you feel bonded towards somebody else. This is what floods a mother's brain after her baby is born and instantly forms this um, maternal connection, which is interesting, right? In prayer, as Christians, relationally relating to a relational God, this hormone God has created seems to allow us to experience his presence in a more real way. One of the secrets we talked about last week of neuroscience, of understanding our brain, is is plasticity, right? We can wire it by intentional practice. We can do things over and over and over again, and they get easier, and they work better, and they're more powerful. And so if we act in unhealthy ways, we can kind of hardwire our brain to be unhealthy. But if we act in healthy ways, we can hardwire our brain to be healthy. In fact, people who pray more often and more regularly report regularly an experience of feeling closer to God. They report the existence of God feeling like a a bigger reality, a more um, existential reality for them. Your immune function improves. Cortisol decreases. Endorphins flood your brain. Even sex hormones and growth hormones are regulated in a healthier way. Um, Brain studies have implicated activity, um, increased activity in the frontal and parietal lobes, uh, the thalamus, decrease activity in the limbic system, brainstem, and actually increases gray and white matter. People who pray and meditate more often have enlarged, healthier parts of the brain. 
Um, now, here is what we want to do with this type of information, okay? It's really not a secret to almost anybody that a healthy prayer life and a healthy life of meditation um, can make you a calmer person, a nicer person, a healthier person. The task for us as Christians is how does it make us more Christ-like? How can it make us closer to God? How can it help us fulfill our mission given to us from Christ to go and to make disciples? Where there are a couple of things we can learn from neuroscience and and use to our advantage. Um, The first is this, your view of God. So the theology that you have, um, while we said that prayer meditation seems to have the same effect across different belief systems, there's one big exception to this. If you think of God, say there's a scale. On one side is this type of God, on this side is another type of God. If you think of God as more of an angry person who's judgmental and vindictive, associated with shame and guilt, this actually does the opposite of these healthy reactions in your brain. Your limbic system, instead of calming down, fires up even further. You get more fearful, you get more anxious, you get more hateful of other people, you're more inclined to divide and dehumanize and demonize other people. You probably have seen this type of thing happen in a fundamentalist religion or group. This is actually negative reinforcement in a literal neurological way, which is why perhaps it is actually literally important that we see the image of God in the face of Christ on the cross, that we let the person of Jesus reveal to us the true nature of God, a compassionate God, a welcoming God, a forgiving and loving God. When we pray and meditate with those type of emotions, with that as our object of reference, we find that prayer increases our ability Um, to reflect those traits. We become more passionate. We become more loving. Um, We become closer um, to the one we are praying to. Um, In fact, um, most neuroscientists believe that um, what happens to a person involved in a fundamentalist um, religious sect like this is comparable neurologically to someone with post-traumatic stress disorder. It's, It's that damaging to your brain. And unfortunately, I think maybe some of us in here could say, yeah, that's true. I've experienced that. I've seen that. I've felt that. I've been in a community where, I, where there's spiritual abuse happening, where God was wielded as, a, as a, a weapon and not shared as a gift. There was a pastor in Houston, actually, who's involved in a study um, with a, a neuroscientist at Baylor, uh, Ramirez Salas, 2009. And what they did was they took a group of clinically depressed patients um, and they set up a six-week prayer course with this Houston pastor. I don't know exactly the details, but over six weeks, he did these one-on-one prayers with this group of depressed people. And they were depressed because of some traumatic event that was partially because of it. They had PTSD-like symptoms, if not actual diagnosis. Um, and what they found was over six weeks, there were very compelling neurological changes that happened and then continued to last. It happened and then continued to go on in their lives. 
And what they found was that there was more activity increasingly in the prefrontal areas of the brain when they were asked about the trauma and asked to relive the trauma. Well, this suggests to the scientists and what this plays out in the self-reports of these patients is that they are able to regulate their cognitive, cognitive control um, in a more intentional way. It suggests that this, this type of praying is allowing them to have healthier control over their emotions. It's allowing them to, to see and feel and experience their emotions in a healthier, more spiritually mature um, type of way. Um, this art, this discipline of praying, meditating, um, this is indeed one of the ways that we are transformed into a new creation to follow Christ, to know him more often. Praying is one of the tasks that our lives center around. We pray when we gather with the church. We pray as individuals. We pray alongside of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. The Scripture tells us that Jesus, one of his main roles for us right now is that of prayer. He intercedes on our behalf for us. We're told that the Holy Spirit prays alongside us and for us. We don't have words to say. This contemplative prayer I often like to describe as super rational. It's not that it's less than logical. It's that it's more than logical. Does that make sense? It's not that you can't describe it. It's that it's overwhelmingly undescribable. And sometimes as Westerners, we're skeptical. Clearly Christians, a group of Christians can be skeptical of this kind of more mystical, um, contemplative experience in prayer, which is, is ironic to me because Christianity is not a modern, rational Western religion. It's an ancient Eastern religion. Um, if you're uncomfortable with mystical experiences in religion, you're going to be uncomfortable with the people who were largely our leaders of Christianity. Um, if you remember, the Apostle Peter changes his stance on whether Gentiles can be part of the church and whether he can eat meat, because not he's working out on the workbook and he comes to a logical conclusion, because he's praying at a fixed hour on a roof and he goes into a trance and he has a vision from God. And then some people knock on his door, and theology is revolutionized. And the Apostle Paul is maybe the most mystical, charismatic of them all. If you remember, he says he's gone to a place called the third heaven. He can't even talk to you about it. He actually himself goes to the desert for three years, retreats by himself. There's a rich Christian history of retreating to find um, pre- the presence of God in prayer and meditation, all the way back to the 3rd and 4th centuries. It's called the monastic tradition. Um, prayer um, also um, increases our, our relational ability, both with God and with others. Um, it helps us um, perform the mission of the church, to participate in that mission. Karl Barth once said, to clasp the hands of prayer is to begin the uprising against the disorder of the world. When we ask ourselves, what might we be able to do in a world of disorder? Bart might suggest the place to start is to put your hands together and to pray. Regular, intentionally. What it does is it rewires us to be more like Christ. To be closer to God. To center all of our lives in relationship to who we are as God's children. To open our eyes up and allow us to be better equipped 
to participate in God's activity in the lives of people around us. So we, we talked last week, we ended the sermon with ways that we could intentionally be grateful. There are ways that we can intentionally participate in these practices of prayer um, that will help us as we, we grow in Christ. Um, I would suggest um, that most people left to their own devices to pray spontaneously find it difficult and fall off. And this is why historically, traditionally, Christians have been not asked to make up their own prayers at whatever time it feels right to them. They've been given prayers. And they've been told, pray at this time. Pray this prayer. Not only will it help you know what to pray for, remind you of things to pray for, not only will it give you a schedule to pray at, but you'll also be in community with Christians around the world praying the exact same prayer. And you have all these different, there's the Book of Common Prayer. Um, I've I've got different ones in my office I can recommend to you. My, My first recommendation to you would be this. Start some kind of schedule. Start praying some sort of hours. You can find all kinds of things online. Again, I can recommend different books. Um, There's a thing called the Jesus Prayer that you might use to try to get into more of this contemplative uh, contemplative state. Um, This goes back to ancient times as well. It um, coincides with kind of a breathing, heartbeat, relaxation technique, um, but again, aimed toward Christian spiritual formation. Um, the mantra seems to go, it, it, the words vary, but something to the extent of Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me. And here's how you would practice this. For about 20 or minutes, though, is, is what's recommended. You match up these words to your breathing and to your heartbeat. And of course, you'll be distracted, right? But just like being a mindful person, you let those thoughts come and you let them go, right? You don't judge yourself for them. You just recenter yourself. You go after this experience of God's presence. Lord, Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me. And it starts to shape how you think and shape how you experience the world. And then you might find later on during the day, all it takes is one or two reminders. And if you think about just that one little phrase, think of how much truth that communicates. Um, there are other ways that have been practiced historically. I've got... Um, prayer beads here. These were made for me um, by a friend um, before he went to Amsterdam to do his PhD. Um, you might be familiar with the, the Roman Catholic tradition of uh, rosaries. There's all kinds of ways you can use the prayer beads. These are more kind of Protestant prayer beads. I've got seven in the middle. Um, um, the way I usually will work them um, is I'll go through the fruit of the Spirit, or I'll go through um, different types of prayers, and then when I hit um, you know, this colored prayer, I say the Lord's Prayer, and you go through. And again, it's just a way of, of centering yourself, and it's even better that you have something to hold and feel, right? Because remember, we're embodied people. If we're doing this all in our minds, we're losing out on a certain senses that can help shape us. Regular, intentional, committed, Praying and meditating will help us experience, know, follow, and enjoy the Lord more. And like the psalmist, we might be able to to say, a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. We pray with me. Father, we thank you for the gift of prayer, for the invitation that we have 
to approach you with our thoughts and our requests. We thank you for the way you've made yourself available to us, both through your Son and, and the activity and presence of the Holy Spirit. As we come to the table, Father, we pray that you would again invite us into your holy presence. We pray that we would once again receive the good news of the gospel, that we are loved and saved, we are transformed and made new, that we are repurposed for the kingdom of God. It's in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit that we pray. Amen. Thank you.